Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10 and considering a divine priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10, a divine priesthood. Give attention now to God's holy word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. A movement is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you have been merciful to us and heard our prayers and that you have given us your holy scriptures. We pray now, O Lord, that your word, your preached word, would be the means by which you reveal to us eternal life, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that in hearing your voice, we might be saved. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if any of you have purchased a home. I know several of you have. Some of you have not at this point. But uh, one of the things you learn as you enter the process of purchasing a home is that you have to do your due diligence. Now, what does due diligence mean? Well, it means that you go to the property and you see what it's like. You you see how the roof is. You see what the foundation is like. You find out, is this basement a flooded basement? Is it prone to flooding? Do the pipes leak? You go and do your due diligence so that when you take possession of the house, you know what to expect. And we've all heard stories, some uh, close friends of ours in this congregation, uh, stories of how real estate agents have hidden some of that due diligence. They have covered over some of the flaws of the house just to get the sale, and then the couple takes possession of the house. Surprise, surprise, the basement does flood, or the pipes do leak, or whatever the problem might be. And so doing this due diligence, we, we have to do some background checking, We have to find out what's going on with this house so that when we take possession, we know what to expect. 
It's a sad day when somebody takes possession of a house and they haven't done any due diligence and they, they are in love with the outward form of the house, but they get inside and find it's not what they expected it to be. Well, likewise, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is a dwelling place, as it were. It's interesting in Revelation 21 that we just read, it said there is no temple there, but, the, but God and the Lamb are the temple. You see, in this temple, we find a dwelling place, and in order to take possession of this house, so to speak, in order to occupy salvation, to receive Christ for our salvation, we have to do some due diligence. We, we have to do some background work so we know what to expect. Sadly, in our day, there are many that go by the name of Christian. There are many cults and sects and divisions among Christians who are able to garner converts for themselves because, sadly, many people don't do their due diligence. And what happens when you don't do your due diligence? You don't know what to expect. You're open for all kinds of deceptions and, as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 4, the deceitful trickery of men who lie in wait to snare the souls of people. And so we have to do our due diligence, and we have to go to the right place to do our due diligence. That's what we see going on in the passage before us, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. The author is writing to his Hebrew audience, and he's instructing them in the due diligence about what they should expect from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now in this passage, the point that the author is making is, is a rather simple point. It's one he's going to trace out for the next several sections of this book. The point he's making is very simple. The priesthood of Melchizedek is higher than the priesthood of Levi. The priesthood of Melchizedek is higher than the priesthood of Levi. It's a pretty straightforward and simple point. He repeats it here. He's going to repeat it in several other places in this book. But what I want us to notice in this passage, as we look in this passage, is not merely that one point that Melchizedek's priesthood is higher than the priesthood of Levi. I want us, when we pay attention to this passage, I want us to notice carefully how the author proves his point, how he goes about doing his due diligence, how he goes about finding the information that needs to be found in order to prove his point. You know, when I purchased my first home, I didn't know really a whole lot about homes. And I I got possession of this thing. Thankfully, it wasn't a complete money pit. Some of you may disagree with me. But uh, we took possession of this home, and as I learned more about the house, I've learned more about what to look for. I know what to look for in the basement. I know now what to look for on a roof to see what's going on. Well, likewise, in this passage, it's important for us to understand not only the author's conclusion, Melchizedek is higher than Levi. It's important also for us to understand how he gets there. He does that in two ways. First, he gives us the narrative. He gives us the narrative, verses 1 through 3. The the author here proves that the Melchizedek priesthood is higher than Levi 
by giving us the narrative and then giving us the conclusion, verses 4 through 10. Verses 1 through 3 is the narrative. Verses 4 through, four through 10 is the conclusion from that narrative. And so we're going to consider this passage under those two headings. And by the blessing of God's Spirit, my hope in this sermon is that you will gain a better understanding of how to read the Scriptures for yourself. Now, before we get into some of the details of this passage, there is a bit of debate about passages like this. And and the debate really trades on something roughly like this. We look at a passage like Hebrews 7, and we say that, well, the author of Hebrews looks at the story of Melchizedek, And he says that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's two answers you can give to the question, how does he do that? On the one side, some will say, well, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that gave the author that insight, and wow, isn't that amazing? End of story. The other answer is that, yes, the inspiration of the Spirit is there. The Spirit obviously led this author But the author also uses certain methods and tools. He interprets the scripture in a certain way that we can follow. We can follow the way that he reads scripture and learn how to read scripture and apply it in different passages. That's roughly the way the debate over passages like this goes. My understanding and the position I'm going to take as we look at this passage is Yes, the inspiration of the Spirit protects this author from error. But the insights that he gives to us about Melchizedek, the way he interprets the narrative, follows a pattern that we can learn from. It follows a method of reading the Scriptures, not only that we can learn from, but that we must learn from. You know, Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he teaches the things of eternal life according to the words that the Spirit teaches, not the words that men's wisdom teaches. The words of God are the inspired words of Holy Scripture. They contain the secret to eternal life. But oftentimes where we mistake in understanding the Scriptures is by approaching the Scriptures with a human understanding of the Scriptures. Well, this passage, by God's blessing, will help us to correct some of those human understandings and learn how to read the Scriptures with the mind of the Spirit. And so he begins in verses 1 and 2, with uh, 1 through 3, with the narrative. You'll notice in verses, verse 1 and the very first part of verse 2, the author here simply recounts the narrative from Genesis chapter 14. Look at what he says. He says, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. So one of the first things our author does with the narrative of Melchizedek is he gets the facts correct. He knows the facts of the narrative. He, he outlines the details of what actually happens In this story, he repeats Melchizedek's name. He talks about his office as a priest. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. He blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth 
of all the spoils of the war. He knows the facts of the narrative. Now, this, brothers and sisters, is probably one of the most important things that we need to recognize about understanding the Word of God. we got to know what's happening in it. We, we have to know the facts of the Bible. We, we have to know what the Bible actually says rather than what we think it might say. You know, I, I know that in my personal testimony, but I know that there's several other people in the room whom I've talked to about this have come to a deeper understanding of the Scriptures, have come to a a conviction about the Reformed faith by doing what? Reading Calvin? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. Memorizing the Catechism? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. Many people come to a deeper understanding of the Reformed faith by simply reading the Bible. By, By reading the Scriptures and finding out what they actually say. You know, one of the great gifts of the Reformation was that we have the Scriptures in our native language, in our mother tongue. As many of you know, this was the great passion of Martin Luther, that the Scriptures should be translated into the German language so that the German people could read the Bible for themselves. William Tyndale once famously said to a Roman Catholic priest, he says, if, I, if God allows me to, I will cause a plowboy to know more of the Scriptures than you do. And he worked on his English translation so that the English plowboy could know the Word of God, could read it for himself. Probably one of the greatest tragedies of the church in America today is that people who are Christians, sincere, godly Christians that are trying to serve the Lord, don't know what the Bible says. They just don't know the basic facts of the narratives. They, they perhaps don't know the Ten Commandments. They perhaps don't know the Lord's Prayer. They perhaps don't know what chapter, uh, what chapter would you go to find, out, um, uh, to find out where Abraham was circumcised? What chapter is Noah's Ark found in? What psalm t- is the psalm of the Good Shepherd? What... Uh, which, uh, which person was Solomon's mother? All of these basic facts of the Bible that if we would just read the Bible and learn the Bible and know the Bible would clear up a lot of our misunderstanding about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the author knows the facts. He gives us the facts of the narrative. The next thing he does, though, in, in knowing the facts and presenting the facts... He now interprets the facts. This is where differences of opinion start to come in. He he now interprets the facts uh, at the second part of verse 2. Notice he says, first, being translated. And he gives us an interpretation. First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now notice at this point, the second half of verse 2 and verse 3, the author is merely telling us what the facts mean. What what does all this mean? Yes, Melchizedek came, slaughter the kings, blessing tithe. Great, that's the narrative. Now we have to figure out what does it all mean? 
What's the significance of these facts? And he begins by translating this fellow's name. Melchizedek in Hebrew is a combination of two words, Melchi and Zedek. And so the name literally means king of righteousness. He goes on and translates also the fact that he is the king of Salem. The king of Salem means that this man was a king in the place called Salem. The author then translates this and says that means king of peace. Now, as, we, as he begins to interpret this, we, we need to have another sort of word of caution here. If you go back and read Genesis 14 where this story is found, the narrative of Melchizedek takes up two or three verses. That's it. In the whole chapter. And so there's only two or three verses that the author is working with, and you might miss some of the significance of that passage because it's so short. It doesn't occupy a large section of the book of Genesis. It's only two or three verses. As, as the author begins dealing with this, there, there's several things to notice about that passage that make it significant. The first is that it's in Genesis 14 where we first find the word king. Genesis 14 is the first time Moses writes the word king in all of the Torah. It happens in Genesis 14. Genesis 14 is also the first place Moses writes the word priest. Very interesting, isn't it? These two words show up for the first time in all of Scripture in Genesis 14. Those two facts alone ought to trigger our thinking. Why is he introducing these words now? What's the purpose of these terms coming up at this point? The other thing to notice about how this author begins to interpret these facts, he not only notices the names of Melchizedek, his titles as king of Salem, he then goes on to notice what is not there. You know, you go back and read the book of uh, Genesis and you read chapter 14 and you're sort of moving along, we're following Abraham, Lot, oh, there's a battle of these kings. And as you read the narrative, Melchizedek just seems to pop into the scene. There's no introduction. There's no preparation for this. Abraham is going along. The king of Sodom is there. And then, bam, Melchizedek shows up. Turn with me to Genesis 14. I want you to see this in the pages of the Scripture itself. Genesis 14. Genesis 14, summarizing it just a little bit for us, there's these five kings versus four kings. They fight this huge battle. Lot is captured. Abraham rescues him. Abraham's returning. Then in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek. No, no preparation, just Melchizedek pops into the scene, brings out bread and wine, blesses Abraham, Abraham gives him a tithe. It's this almost miraculous appearance of Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews now is interacting with. He, he's interpreting this fact. 
So we return now to the book of Hebrews to see what the author does with this. It says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What the author is doing here is he looks at the narrative of Melchizedek. He notices the details of the narrative. He notices the facts of the narrative. And now he interprets and notices, hey, this guy is not given any kind of background. He just shows up out of nowhere. We don't know who his father is. We don't know who his mother was. He's got no ancestors that Moses tells us about. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. There's nothing told to us about this character. Then he goes on to say, he's made like the Son of God. Uh, He was made like the Son of God. He remains a priest continually. Now, here's one of the key things to understand about interpreting the Scriptures. And this really ties in with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Learning how to think after the Spirit's wisdom. How to interpret according to the Spirit's wisdom. When the author says in verse 3 that Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, what he's referring to is that the way Melchizedek is presented in Moses' narrative, the way Moses presents this character, he presents him as without mother, without father, without genealogy, no beginning of days, and no end of life. That's the way Melchizedek is presented. And he's being presented this way to give a picture of what Christ will be like. He's preparing the way for us. He is describing for us what to expect out of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says he is made like the Son of God. He's made like the Son of God in that the Son of God is a divine person. That the Son of God comes and goes as He wills. He has no genealogy. The Son of God abides forever. Melchizedek abides forever. So He's made like the Son of God. This is a key thing to understand when you read the Scriptures. You have to know the facts of the narrative. That's essential. If you don't know what the Bible says, you can't interpret what the Bible says. But you also have to keep in mind, how is the Bible saying what it's saying? Moses put Melchizedek in there for a reason. Moses presents Melchizedek to serve a specific purpose. He's presented as someone without a father, without a mother, without genealogy. Why would he do this? And it's noticing those details and interpreting those details that we gain wisdom and understanding about what the Scriptures teach. That's what the author walks us through here. Now, at this point, there's a couple of errors about Melchizedek that we need to correct. I used to hold to some of these errors, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I realized I was wrong. Um, Calvin, Owen, all of the greats said, yeah, that can't be the case, because it ruins the whole metaphor. First off, Melchizedek is not Seth, the son of Adam. uh, I'm sorry, Shem, that's what it is. Melchizedek is not Shem, the son of Noah. It can't be the case. The reason for that is, as the author of Hebrews interprets, Melchizedek is somebody without a father, without a mother, without genealogy. He's not presented as somebody that we've already met in the book of Genesis. 
He's presented as somebody who just is like the Son of God. He pops in, does what he needs to do, and we don't hear the end of him. He's just always kind of there. So Melchizedek cannot be Shem, the son of Noah. And Melchizedek is not any other character that we've already met in the Old Testament. Here's one of the mistakes I think we make in interpreting the story of Melchizedek that some of these commentators have helped me to correct in my own thinking. First, ask yourself, what is the purpose of the Old Testament? Why is the Old Testament given to us? Is it given to us to learn ancient history? No, that's not the purpose of the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament given to us to learn the evolution of Jewish and Israeli religion? No, that's not the purpose of the Old Testament. As Christ told us in John chapter 5, the purpose of the Old Testament is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament's purpose is to lay the foundation. It is the Holy Spirit's due diligence in preparing us for what we should expect out of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the Old Testament Scriptures. In general, that's the point of the Old Testament Scriptures. And in particular, all of the particular elements of the Old Testament are meant to prepare us for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the author begins to interpret the story of Melchizedek, he keeps this understanding in mind. Melchizedek is not some curiosity put in there so I can uh, learn more ancient history or exercise my logic skills. Melchizedek is put there to teach me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is put there to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. And so the author of Hebrews starts off with the narrative. He knows the story and he interprets the story. He gives meaning to the facts. I want to give you some practical guidance in your own Christian life about how to grow in this area. Because I guarantee you, as you grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures, you will grow in your faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will grow spiritually. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, I, I, if we're going to grow and we're going to learn what the Scriptures say, we have to make time to read the Scriptures. We have to carve out time and dedicate time to growing in the knowledge of the Word of God. You know, the Westminster Confession teaches us very wisely. Scripture is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. And if you want to understand what Scripture says and what it means, you need to know your Scriptures. So here's one of the best practical ways to do this. I've known older saints... And I've known younger saints who have dedicated to this practice, and you'd be amazed at the growth that they experience through a very low-effort practice. Fifteen minutes every day, read the Bible. Non-negotiable. Whatever time of day it works for you. Some people do it during lunch. Some people do it in the morning after a cup of coffee. Some people do it at night after the kids go to bed. Whatever works in your schedule, 15 minutes a day, Read the Scriptures. And the way that you read the Scriptures during this time, 
Don't spend a ton of time on one verse. Try to read as much content as you can. Try to read three, four, five chapters in one sitting. It's a lot easier than you might think. If you're not into the habit, you might think, well, that's a, who wants us to read five chapters of the Bible? It will take you about 10 minutes to do that. If it takes anything. 15 minutes a day, read the Bible, ask God to bless it. You finish your 15 minutes. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Close it. Go about your day. Doesn't have to be a big, profound eight hour marathon reading the scriptures. But every day, if you develop that practice, you will find that your mind is furnished with the facts of the narratives, and you'll find that the scriptures interpret the narratives for you. You, you begin to see, oh, this is what the, the apostle says about Melchizedek. Great, now I understand. But you've got to dedicate to reading it. You've got to dedicate to knowing what the Bible says. That's the key, most foundational element to growing as a Christian. Well, the author gives us uh, this recounting of the narrative. He interprets the facts of the narrative. He tells us what happened with Melchizedek, what the facts mean. And now he draws a conclusion from that. He, verses 4 through 10, he now begins to reason through, well, what does this stuff really mean? We have the facts. We, we have the interpretation. Now we've got to deal with it. Now we've got to figure out how does this apply to the rest of the Scriptures. And this final element here, the, verses 4 through 10, this, I think, is really where a, a, a lot of Christians and, and perhaps a lot of churches remain stunted in, in their spiritual growth. You know, the Westminster Confession teaches us, summarizing the doctrines of Scripture, that whatever we need to know about God and the way of salvation is expressly stated in the Scriptures or, by good and necessary consequence, may be derived from it. What we're going to see in verses 4 through 10 is an example of good and necessary consequence. Now, this is important for your life. This is not just the work of theologians. This is not just the work of pastors and elders. This is the work of your soul. This is how you need to engage with the Scriptures. And if you engage in this way, you will grow in your faith. Notice, first off, what he says in verse 4. Consider. Consider. This is, this is a, a command that the author of Hebrews gives to us. He's relayed the facts to us. He's interpreted the facts. And now he says, you people, you consider the greatness of Melchizedek. You think about it. Ponder this with me. See, the Bible commands us to consider the ways of God. It commands us to engage with what God has revealed. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, the, the Lord says through the prophet, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Likewise here, the author says, now consider this. Chew on this. Contemplate this. Consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Now the author adds another feature here to this, to this whole uh, doctrine that he's establishing. He brings in the idea of a tithe. He brings in this concept of tithing, giving a tenth, and, and giving it to the priest. 
Now, before we go any further, in order to understand his argument, we have to consider a little bit what does a tithe mean? What is a tithe? There are several ways to think about the tithe from the Scriptures. You can think about it as an offering to the poor. You can think about it as something that's given to support the public ministry of the Word. You can think about it as something we give to God as a testament of our gratitude for His grace. All three of those senses are found in the Old Testament. Here, however, the, the focus of the tithe is the tithe as a gift to God through the hands of his minister. The, the gift is being given to the minister, and the minister represents God. And so the point here is not how the public ministry is supported. It's not how the poor are to be taken care of, but it's how through our tithing we give back to God and show our gratitude and praise of him. Now this becomes important as, the, as Abraham, I'm sorry, the author uh, is going to make his point that Melchizedek is higher than Levi. And it trades on who receives the tithes. Who is the tithe given to? Well, the author says, now consider how great he was. He was uh, Abraham gave a tenth part to him of the spoils. Now he begins to compare him to Levi in verse 5. Indeed, those who receive, I'm sorry, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Now he brings in this comparison. He says, yes, the Levitical priesthood had a commandment to receive tithes. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. Now he brings the comparison. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. What the author is doing here is, remember, he's writing to a Hebrew audience. They had great respect for the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood was established by God Almighty in the commandments of Moses. And what the author has to try and persuade them of is that the Levitical priesthood is an inferior priesthood. It was never meant to be the permanent priesthood. It was never meant to be the highest priesthood. And he goes now to prove this through the giving and receiving of the tithes. He says, yes, Levi received tithes from the people, from his own brethren. Uh, they are brethren because they're all from the loins of Abraham. But then in verse 6 he says, he whose genealogy is not from the Levites received tithes from Abraham. Now, he's going to cash this out a little bit further. Now, beyond all contradiction, uh, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here's the point of what the author is saying here. Currently, right now, Levi receives tithes from all of his brethren. And all of the brethren of Levi, all the Israelites, are all brothers because they all descended from Abraham. We're all from the loins of Abraham as Israelites. What the author then says is that, well, if you look at the story of Melchizedek, Abraham, who's the father of Levi and of all the brothers of Levi, 
paid tithes to Abraham. Because Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he paid tithes, the Levitical priesthood, as it were, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek is higher than Levi. The Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He adds, he's going to make more out of this later on, but he adds, not only did Levi pay tithes in Abraham, but the Levitical priests die. They are mortal men. Their priesthood comes to an end because they die. Melchizedek's priesthood never comes to an end because he lives perpetually. He always lives, and so he remains a priest forever. And then finally, he says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The Levites were appointed to bless the people through the benediction, but what the author says here is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. In a sense, he blessed Levi through Abraham. So if Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Now the only priesthood that is superior to the the, the, uh, the only priesthood that is superior to the Levitical priesthood must be a divine priesthood. This is a priesthood that only a divine person can occupy. Because as the author has told us the narrative of Melchizedek, as he has interpreted the narrative of Melchizedek, the Melchizedek priesthood can only be occupied by one without father and without mother, without genealogy and without end of life. It must be occupied by one who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. It must be occupied by someone to whom even Abraham the patriarch submitted himself by paying tithes and receiving a blessing. This is the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's superior to the priesthood of Levi. And Moses already wrote about this. Now, you know where all this is leading. All of this is leading to Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the next section. All the author has done at this point is his due diligence. He's preparing us with what to expect out of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that God's purposes from the beginning was not to establish the temple in Jerusalem. It was not to appoint this carnal priesthood that lives and dies repeatedly forever. It was always God's purpose to appoint a priesthood that only the Son of God could occupy. And this priesthood that belongs to the Son of God is the priesthood of Melchizedek. This is the priest that we have. Because notice, at the end of verse 6, the forerunner has entered the presence behind the veil. I'm sorry, the end of chapter 6. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, your high priest lives and reigns forever. 
He is not a priest according to the order of Levi. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But as we've seen in this passage, to understand the depth of what that means, we have to know the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament. Because as our Puritan forefathers would tell us, the New, meaning the New Testament, is concealed in the Old. And the Old is revealed in the New. Learn your Bibles. Grow in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you, you will grow in your spiritual life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God and for the Scriptures that you've given to us. We thank you for the uh, Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills the priesthood of Melchizedek as our eternal high priest. We pray, Lord, that you would always, through him, receive us in our prayers. We pray that you would bless us for his sake. And we pray that you would help us to understand your word more fully. That in understanding your word, we might know you and serve you rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.